We're going to continue in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, and I, this morning, am going to attempt to do a number of things. One of the things that I want to try to do is to give you a way of reading the Bible and of looking and understanding God's redemptive plan in human history. Now, as I try to give you that vision or that interpretation of God's acting in history to redeem mankind, I know that there are some who will be inclined to agree with what I describe, and there will be some who are going to be inclined to disagree with the story that I'm going to try to tell to us. For those of you who find yourself inclined to disagree with what I'm going to propose, I would just ask that you would suspend your disbelief and disagreement this week and in two weeks and consider the things that I say. And if in the end you still disagree with me, that's okay. You're, you're, going to agree with most everything else that you hear preached at this church, and you're going to fit in here really, really well. But I'm going to propose some adjustments to a particular way of reading the Bible and understanding God's work in human history. Now, setting that aside, that's sort of a meta-level thing that I'm going to try to do this morning. There are two other immediate reflections that, even if you disagree with me, or if you agree with me, that I think you'll be helped in as you leave this morning. The first is that we're going to reflect on the reality that God regularly and consistently uses ordinary and less than ordinary individuals to accomplish his redemptive work in the world. So we'll see in this story that God uses regular Joes or regular Boazes and Ruths to accomplish his redemptive work in history. And that produces hope and meaning in each of our lives because we're just regular people. And, and some of us might be less than regular people in, as we look around and evaluate ourselves based on worldly metrics. So if you are confused by other things that I say, take this away that God wants to use ordinary people to accomplish his redemptive purposes on this earth. The second takeaway that I think you can have, regardless of, of what you think about anything else I say, is our reveling in the reality that wherever there is death, God works to bring life. So whether it's a fallow field or an infertile womb, God is working to bring life where death previously reigned. And that is a hope that's picked up by Christ and continued with the resurrection to give us a hope that where we experience death in this life, we will one day experience only the fullness of life. So if nothing else, take away those two realities as we try to look at this story on a meta level as well. Now, by way of reminder, last week I suggested to you that there is no such thing as a history that is just a bare record of events. So whether you're reading the Bible or the newspaper or a history textbook, you never come across an account of just what actually happened. That's impossible to do because every retelling of history event in history writing is told from a particular angle 
with, from a person who holds beliefs and has pre-understandings about things and cannot help but interpret events as they unfold. So when we get to the biblical narrative, we don't have just a video camera capturing all of the data and just to explain what happened, the bare facts. Instead, we're getting, getting an interpretation of events. Okay, so when we read this biblical narrative, we need to exercise a careful and I think a spiritual reading of the text, which is to say, allowing the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see what Ruth the book contributes to our larger understanding of the redemptive work of God in human history. Now, you might push back on that and say, it is possible to have bare record of events, and all that matters is my interpretation of that bare record of events. Well, I want to suggest to you that even in the most um, neutral recording of an event, it's not collecting all of the data, and that event is interpreted even by the way video cameras are positioned. So if if you are, whether, whether you're watching a body camera of a police officer or a movie or a news documentary of events, those things are positioned in a way to tell a particular story. And, and even the ones that might be there neutrally, think police body camera, it's only giving one perspective. It's giving the perspective of the individual on whose body that camera is positioned, and even that is limited and demands interpretation. And as we've seen in the events over the course of the past year, the most neutral video camera recording can be interpreted in a hundred different ways. So when we get to the biblical text, what I'm trying to suggest is that this storyteller is trying to give you an interpretation of events that not only say something about the quote-unquote bare facts of what happened, but also of what God is doing through these events to bring redemption to his people. Okay, so that was last week, and I spent a significant amount of time arguing that. And what that forces us to do is to pay careful attention to the way the story is told now. And what I want you to observe is that at various points, the storyteller could simply give a proposition and end, but instead records a description. So for instance, we will read after Boaz declares that he's going to marry Ruth, we, we will read a particular worded response of people who are interpreting what's happening rather than the storyteller simply making the propositional statement and the witnesses were down with what Boaz wanted to do. That, that would just be a statement that's propositional in nature. But what we have are interpretations of what's going on. And that interpretation demands careful attention from us. Okay? So, so take note of that as we go. Now, if you remember from last week, Boaz has met with this city council, in essence, and he's confronted this other redeemer. Now, I failed to give the actual words that are used instead of this other redeemer's names. The words are poloni almoni. Okay, they're nonsense, rhyming sort of words, and they're just veiling the identity of this other redeemer. So 
if I were going to translate this text, I think I would just say, call this guy pal. Okay, Poloni Almoni, we've got, hey, pal, come over here and we're going to hash this out. And this guy who remains unnamed gives up his right to redeem Naomi's property. And Boaz declares that he is going to purchase that property and he's going to marry Ruth. So that's where we're picking up this week in verse 9. So following along in the text as we go, Boaz says here in verse 9 to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. So all of the facts are being laid out there. Remember, this is something of a legal proceeding. So details are going to be mentioned almost in a repetitive way, but it's, it's almost necessary because of the formality of the proceedings here. But the point is that Boaz is going to function as a redeemer to keep this property in the family line, in this family line that's dying out, and that is officially died out essentially at this point. Now, the land, of course, is entering into this extended family, but then Boaz declares that he's going to be, go beyond his responsibilities as a redeemer, and he's going to marry Ruth the Moabitess. And as he marries her, even though levered marriage doesn't apply, he's going to, in principle, act out leveret marriage. So he says in verse 10, I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's wife as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name upon his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. So I've suggested in the past that leveret marriage doesn't apply, but the principle or the result of leveret marriage is in play here. Boaz is essentially saying, I am going to marry Ruth and our first child, should the Lord give us a child, is going to be a stand-in legal representative for Malon and his family line. That's what Boaz's rationale for marrying a Moabitess is. I'm, I'm going to essentially perform the function of leveret marriage, even though that doesn't apply to this situation in particular. So we see then that Boaz's intent in marrying the Ruth, marrying this Moabite woman, Ruth, was to have a child with her who'd become the legal heir to the property of Elimelech. And in this way, this child would be a stand-in as Elimelech and Naomi's offspring. He would take the place of Malon and Kilion, and at least in terms of a family record, he would carry on this family name so that this family name would not die out. Now, of course, this is going to be costly to Boaz. On the one hand, he's putting his whole inheritance in jeopardy by marrying a woman who in her previous marriage was childless. So it may also be the case that Boaz and Ruth will not have children, in which case all of Boaz's property goes to this unnamed redeemer. Now, on the other hand, if they have a child, it's costly to Boaz because this guy is going to take this property and remove it from Boaz's inheritance. It, it will now go to Elimelech's line instead of Boaz's line. So whatever happens, Boaz is taking a risk here. So then as he makes this declaration, he charges those who have gathered at the gate to serve as witnesses to this legal and administrative transaction. 
He says in the second half of verse 10, you are witnesses today. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders said, we are witnesses. So there's this community affirmation to what's going on and it's making this declaration a reality. Now, I think there's something here that should remind us of the role of the community in, um, in kind of affirming these sorts of decisions and in affirming these sorts of realities. That's a bit outside of what we can dwell on this morning. But notice that this was not a decision. This decision to marry Ruth is not one that Boaz can make just by himself. He really has to get the affirmation and approval of the entire community. And that's what happens here. They say, we're witnesses. Now, they're going to go on to provide major affirmation and blessing with respect to the marriage between Ruth and Boaz, a marriage that by the letter of the law is prohibited. Israelites cannot marry Moabites or Canaanites, so this affirmation by the people of Israel is really necessary. And in this affirmation that they give, we understand that this community of Israelites is looking at Ruth and Boaz and saying, this is a good marriage. This is a right marriage. And they're going beyond that to affirm that Ruth is now in every way an Israelite. This is going to be a, a main point that's been made throughout the book. Throughout, there have been questions about Ruth's identity. So think back to the first time that Boaz encounters Ruth. His question is, who is this young woman? And, and then when uh, Bo, Boaz encounters Ruth on the threshing floor and he doesn't recognize her, there's the question, who are you? And then when Ruth gets home after that encounter, Naomi's question is, who are you, my daughter? There's this constant question about the identity of Ruth. And all of these questions spring from Ruth's self-declaration that Naomi's people will be her people, that she is now an Israelite. And there's been this hanging question, is Ruth an Israelite? Well, in the positive affirmation from the community now, there's the affirmation that yes, she is an Israelite. Now, with this affirmation, we'll see the particulars of this as we go, but there are two main lessons that I think we ought to learn or at least reflect on by this affirmation of this Moabite woman into the house of Israel. The first is that we should not understand Israel or her covenant God as racist in any sense. Sometimes critics of the Bible will read the Old Testament and leverage the accusation that Israel and that the God of the Bible is racist, particularly when it comes to those sections of the Old Testament where Israel was to go in and conquer the land and put to death all non-Israelites, or where there's legislation that says an Israelite cannot marry a non-Israelite. Well, sometimes critics of the Bible will suggest that the the Old Testament supports a racist worldview, and that's not the case. And we see soundings of this throughout the Old Testament, and this is one of them. And what it forces us to do is to reconsider our interpretation of the events where Israel goes in and strikes down Canaanites and where God prohibits marriage to non-Israelites. 
And as we reconsider that interpretation of those events, I think what we have to come away with is an interpretation that says ethnicity is not the issue. Skin color is not the issue. Race is not the issue. What is at stake is allegiance to the God who created those people. When God speaks to Abraham, and then when he speaks to Moses and Joshua and everyone else, the, the reason they are to go into the, the land and smite all these people is because they're acting as the medium or the agent of God's judgment against these who have rejected him and committed vile acts of sin. So the reason for their destruction has nothing to do with their ethnic identity and everything to do with their rejection of the authority of the creator God. That's what's at stake here. And then as we start to investigate the rationale be behind the restrictions on marrying non-Israelites over and over again, the reason that is given is this, so that you might not turn to other gods. So as we observe the Old Testament, it seems to me that every time an Israelite marries a non-Israelite who has not rejected false gods, it's portrayed negatively. But whenever an Israelite marries a non-Israelite who has rejected and turned from all false gods and turned to the gods of God of Israel, it's portrayed positively. The point being that these issues of ethnicity and race are not really issues of ethnicity and race, but issues of fidelity and faithfulness to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and to that God alone. So what, so what I'm trying to get you to see is that when you're reading the Old Testament and into the New Testament, where it seems like God might have a racial preference for ethnic Israelites, from the very beginning, we see exceptions to that that would make us be inclined to say that God's redemptive plan is not racially or ethnically based, but that it has everything to do with his own glory in a creation of a people who will worship him and him alone. So I want to give you an example of this. When Israel is instructed to destroy the city of Jericho, there are individuals who do sort of a black ops mission to investigate what's going on. And they encounter this lady who's a prostitute whose name is Rahab. And this lady provides them some protection. She gives them information on the city. And they say to this lady, because you have recognized the authority and the ownership of this land that belongs to Yahweh, because you've recognized our covenant Lord, and you're acting in terms of his redemptive plan and promises to our father Abraham, we are going to spare you. So when they come back to destroy this city, Rahab is spared. This non-Israelite prostitute is spared. And there's this line in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verse 25, that says, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had spent to spy on Jericho, and she still lives in Israel today. Now, when we read a line like that, what we should imagine or what 
rather what we should avoid imagining is that these Israelites spared this lady's life and then sent her on her way and said something like, God gave us this land and you are not ethnically us, so you must leave this land. Instead, she's allowed to stay in Israel to this day. And, and I think we should understand this to mean that she is now irrevocably considered a true Israelite, a true inhabitant of the land and welcomed into the assembly of Israel in perpetuity forever. Now, as we continue to read and track the life of this lady, uh, this lady who is now included in Israel, Rahab, as we start to read the, the rest of the Bible, we get to this genealogy in Matthew 1, and we find out that there's this guy named Salmon who married Rahab. Now, Salmon, by all appearances, is an Israelite. So you've got this Israelite guy who marries an ex prostitute, non-ethnic Israelite, and it's only spoken of in positive terms. Well, this couple gets married and they have a kid and this kid's name is Boaz. So, so think about that with me for a moment. This guy we've been reading about, Boaz, is the son of a former prostitute and at best, Boaz is only 50% ethnically Israelite. Well, that's fascinating to me. And he's not even 50% ethnically Israelite because as we read up Boaz's family tree, we find that several greats up the road, there was another woman who dressed up as a prostitute. This lady is named Tamar and she also is likely not an Israelite. And she sleeps with this guy, Judah, who's a son of Jacob. So Boaz's family line is not a Jewish family line in every sense of the word. Now, this raises questions for us, and I think an important one, and that is, what metric is ethnic Jewishness measured by? In other words, how do you determine that someone is now an ethnic Israelite? Well, this is a debate that's gone on for a really long time, and there are various answers to this question. So, for example, in the medieval time, the medieval Jewish authorities said that the way someone was declared ethnically a Jew was if their mother is ethnically a Jew. And, and what's surprising about that then is you look at some of these stories, you, you have one generation that's not ethnically Jewish, and then another one that is, if, if that guy, you know, marries a, a Jewish woman. And, and if we take that perspective, and I, I don't know that that's totally a wrong way of thinking about it. I'm not sure that it's the right way. It, this, is, this is really complex. And the more I've read on it, the less I think I can say anything definitive about how to determine if someone's ethnically a Jew. But the point is that individuals who were considered non-ethnic Jews non-ethnic Israel were given rights to the land that's owned by Yahweh and promised to Abraham and his descendants. And there's apparently no problem in Jewish thought with this reality. There's no sense that Israel has been disenfranchised when a non-ethnic Israelite gets to own the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. 
the reason that there is no sense of disenfranchisement is because those individuals are connected to the God of Israel and that, God, that land belongs to him, not to Israel. It's, it's a kind of, they're vassal individuals. They, they get to live on the land, but it's still God's land. So as we start to read the Bible already, I just want to say that this idea of being an ethnic Jew gets disrupted early on in the biblical text. All the way back here, Boaz and, and Ruth, sorry for the spoiler alert, but they're going to have a son. And this guy, I, I'm not a genetics guy or a math guy, but from what I understand, this guy is only 25% Israelite, Obed. And, and then this guy is going to give birth, well, his, his wife will give birth to another guy named Jesse. And this guy will have a son named David who becomes Israel's greatest king. And this guy, David, he's going he's gonna to make some awful sins along the way, including having a child with a lady named Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba is married to a guy named Uriah the Hittite. If you're a Hittite, you're not an Israelite. And as far as I can tell in, in my studies, the majority of individuals are, are believing that Bathsheba is also a Hittite. They're, they're suggesting that she's not an Israelite. Well, David has a son with this lady named Solomon. Well, we continue this Davidic throne line, the core family line of what it means to be an ethnic Israelite, and there's nothing pure blood about it. Now, I, I said that some will be disinclined to agree with me when I start making application to the way we read the rest of the Bible and God's larger redemptive plan here. But I want to suggest to you that these aberrations and this complexity in what it means to be ethnic Israel, and I think irrevocably ethnic Israel, in terms of your connection to Yahweh, should make us reconsider what it means when God promises things and says that the church, by virtue of their connection to Christ, the greatest Davidic king, inherits the promises of Abraham. Now, I want to suggest that we should not limit the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham in any way to something that we might conceive of as ethnic Israel. Now, let me bolster this with a New Testament witness. I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4. This question of ethnic Israel is a discussion that was going on in the first century. And there is a plethora of um, Jewish positions on this, but there's also great diversity within Judaism itself. In fact, many historians would say it's almost hard to talk about one monolithic singular Judaism because as you start to read some of these writings during the first century, that is when Jesus was alive, you have these different groups who are saying, we are the true Israelites. We're the ones who will be vindicated by the Messiah and other Jewish sects who disagree with us, well, they're going to be obliterated. They're not really Jews. Well, that's going on in a lot of different sects of Israel and then of Judaism. And then you get Christianity, which is not something totally different than Judaism. It's a continuation and a greater um, information, greaterly informed and redemptively progressed sect of Judaism 
And it was thought that way, at least initially, as Christians kept worshiping in the synagogue and the temple and other places. And they started to say the same kinds of things. And, and then there were people who would look at them and say, well, you're not true Jews. That's why you get guys like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, who's encouraging churches who are being accused by outside Jewish sects who are saying, you are not God's people. You are not Jews. Well, John can look at these other Jewish sects and say about them, these people are not true Jews, but they are a synagogue of Satan. So throughout the New Testament, we get this idea that this question of who are God's people has been around, and there are a bunch of different groups who are claiming to be God's people, and almost none of it is fundamentally about an ethnic identity. Instead, we get guys like the Apostle Paul who wants to argue that those who inherit Abraham's promises, those who are truly God's people, are those who have been justified by faith. And later on, I'm going to try to make the argument that the storyteller of Ruth wants us to understand as Ruth as being justified by faith in the same way that Abraham was. But in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse um, we'll start in verse 9, as Paul is talking about the blessings of Abraham or the promises made to Abraham, he asks this question, is this blessing only for the circumcised then, that is the Jewish ethnic people, or is it also for the uncircumcised, that is the non-Jewish ethnic people? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. So the point Paul's trying to make here is that when the promises were made to Abraham and his seed and his offspring, Abraham was as of that point in time uncircumcised. So this idea of circumcision as a marker of Jewish identity or these sorts of things were not in play when these promises were made. So verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised so that the righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Now listen here, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only those who were of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. And what I think Paul is doing is looking on these Old Testament accounts 
of those who were justified by faith rather than by their ethnic identity, and truly none can be justified by their ethnic identity. And he's looking at these events, and he's looking at the promises made to Abraham, and he's saying that these promises that talk about the land of Israel that the ethnic Jews will receive, well, actually God had something bigger in mind. He was promising to Abraham the whole world and all who are joined to Abraham by faith will receive in that promise. So I think Paul is a guy who's read stories like Ruth and who has come across these questions of what does it mean to be a true Israelite? And how is it that these individuals who don't qualify as true Israelites in terms of their ethnic identity can enter the land and own the land that was promised to Abraham? Well, the way that they can do this is by faith. They're justified and joined to Abraham by faith. So it is no problem for Obed to own land. It's no problem for Boaz to own land. And it's no problem for Ruth and Boaz to be married because she has been justified by faith. Now, as we start to look at the larger work of the redemption story, we then start to see that this Gentile Ruth, who's included into the people of God here, is a microcosm and precursor and prefiguring of the larger and greater work that God will do to include any Gentile into his redemptive plan and to, to irrevocably include them into his people. So where this one Gentile's position and identity as an ethnic or true Israel is confirmed by her marriage to this redeemer Boaz, the rest of Gentiles in redemptive history will find a way into the house of Israel through their redeemer, Jesus Christ. I think that this story of Ruth is a prefiguring of the plan that God had from the very beginning to redeem all of mankind and to give to them a new creation earth where his presence will dwell forevermore. Now, you might be questioning if I'm reading too much into what's going on here. But as we look at the languages of the language of these witnesses to what's just happened here, that is to say the affirmation of a Moabite as a person of Israel, listen to these words and I think it brings it out all the more. So chapter four, verse 11 of Ruth, these witnesses say, May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. These witnesses are placing Ruth, the Moabitess, in the same terms as Rachel and Leah, the wives of the father of Israel, Jacob. The author of Ruth could have simply said, Propositionally, the witnesses were thrilled that Ruth and Boaz were going to get married and they blessed them and told them, we hope you have a lot of kids. Propositionally, that could have been said. Instead, they want Ruth to be identified in terms of Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. 
And as we read the genealogy that comes after Boaz and Ruth, there's a building of the house of Israel that climaxes in Christ. And then Christ builds for himself a house that's in continuity with this house of Israel. So this very language I want to suggest to you should make us question this black and white distinction between ethnic and non-ethnic Israel and the household of Israel that God is building in his redemptive work. Now, on another level, this recollection of Rachel and Leah is rewriting or correcting the errors of the forebearers in Israel. So as Steve read that text from Genesis where you have Rachel and Leah, well, you have the, this guy, Jacob, who, who's a polygamist. And once again, the Bible does not hesitate to speak negatively about the great patriarchs. This guy made some bad decisions. He took multiple wives sisters, and then he took their servants as wives to have children through them. Well, that's problematic on a number of levels. And as Steve was reading, I hope you picked up on the conflict between Rachel and Leah. I mean, Rachel is feeling hated by Leah, and, and she is, right? And, and she's not having as many children. In fact, it's probably like four years and four kids post-Leah that Rachel has her first kid. And she's so bitter, even in the naming of her kids, that one of them she names Naphtali, which sounds like wrestling or striving, because she strove with her sister and had a kid, and that is uh, pinned her. She, she won the wrestling match, and now her kid is going to be named in a way that rubs it in Leah's face that I had a kid, and you thought you were better than me, and I'm better than you. And, and even within this, instead of appealing to the Lord for children— you have this weird, bizarre thing with mandrakes. Well, these mandrakes, they, they sort of look like ugly, wrinkly babies a little bit. And, and there's this ancient, you could call it junk science, where someone might think that eating a mandrake would make you more fertile. So you've got this lady who's infertile, not having kids. Well, she wants these mandrakes. So that's why they have this switch, because she thinks it's going to make her fertile. You know, so there, there's a lot of bizarre things going on. And by recalling these individuals, these witnesses are saying, we have seen demonstrated in virtue and purity the next and better phase of the building of the house of Israel. There's a unwinding of the problematic scenarios that built the house of Israel. And now there's going to be a stepping forward in virtue. And God, we pray, will use this marriage to continue to build his house in a new and better way. And that's exactly what happens. Now, finally, on this note, I think it's curious that they refer to Rachel and Leah instead of Leah and Rachel. Leah was the first one to be married. Leah was the first one to have kids. And I think they're subtly saying, look, we know that Ruth is infertile. She was married for a decade and had no kids. Well, guess what? There have been other women who were infertile and, and God gave them children. So hang, hang on to that. But then they go on to say, may you, Boaz, be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. 
This, again, is curious to me, and I think they are releasing Boaz from the obligation of upholding the family name of Malon and Elimelech. I think what they're saying is, Boaz, you had noble intentions in wanting to marry Ruth to carry on that family line in this kind of spirit of leveret marriage. Well, we, we don't want to hold you to that. And in fact, with the kids that you have, we hope that your name will be great in this land and that your name will be remembered in perpetuity. So the children that you have, they're your children. It's a gift of God and your name will be remembered. So that's why when we get to the genealogy, it doesn't say Obed was the son of Ruth and Malon. The name Malon and Elimelech are remembered only in terms of this story and Boaz's good intentions. But instead, Boaz's name will be made great in the land. Once again, Boaz is put in a stark contrast with this other redeemer. Poloni Almoni, this nameless redeemer who is forgotten and nameless, is written out of God's story, whereas Boaz his name is going to be great and it's going to be remembered and it's going to be so great and so memorable that over 2,500 years after this story was written, you and I have reflected on this guy Boaz for multiple weeks. As we think of Boaz and Ruth in this way, I think it's a beautiful and hopeful indication that God can take ordinary individuals and use them to accomplish his redemptive purposes. You have Boaz, who's not even 50% Israelite, and you have Ruth, who is 100% Moabite, and God takes these two individuals to create a family line that will result in the greatest king and within a kingdom dynasty of which Jesus Christ will be a part. That's amazing. These ordinary individuals are used by God to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And the way that this all comes together is that you have two individuals who find their core identity in terms of the covenant God of Israel and who exercise noble character in their deportment. They exercise hesed, love and concern for others, even when it costs them their hopes and their futures, and God gives them a better and brighter future. So I think in reflecting on this, you and I should be encouraged to find our identity and our hope and our future in this covenant God. And even when it feels like we're giving up the best that we could have in this life, we can believe that God in a way we may never understand, can use us to further his redemptive purposes. Boaz and Ruth in their life knew nothing of Jesus. Who knows if they were even alive when David was born? Boaz, probably not. He's this older guy. So, so on that note, even if you would hear that and say, well, I know you're saying God can use ordinary people, but I don't feel like he's using me. Well, put a pause on your interpretation of the events of your life and know that sometimes the fruit of the redemptive work of God through you 
might not be fully recognized till generations and generations later. So be faithful now, even when it feels like it doesn't, it's not worth it, when it feels like it doesn't pay to be faithful and to find your identity in the Lord alone. They then say, may your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So once again, there's this terrible story that's being rewritten where Boaz acts in sexual fidelity, where his great, 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 great grandfather Judah failed to. But this reference to Tamar and the equation of Ruth to Tamar here, I think should be read as a declaration of Ruth's righteousness. This is how Tamar is described. She was more righteous than Judah. That is to say, in Ruth's terms here, she is more righteous than the house of Judah, than than the Israelites she's been around. Throughout where Naomi and other Israelites during the times of Judges have failed to be true Israelites, Ruth has shown she is a true Israelite because she is justified by faith. So what happens, verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. God's granting of conception to Ruth was his yes to Boaz's and Ruth's yes to each other in the townspeople's yes to them as a couple. God is giving blessing and affirmation to these individuals. Now I want to just give a couple of words here. In one is that we should recognize that the bearing of children and conception is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. Ruth was married for a decade and was childless. Well, we get the idea here that this is a a nine months and a day later sort of a baby, okay? God grants conception to this couple immediately. This is miraculous. In, In the ancient world, death is conceived of in much broader terms. And a woman who was infertile was thought to, in some terms, to be dead. A family line is dead if no children come from that womb. So for there to be life from an infertile womb would be an act of resurrection power, of conquering over the dead. We see this with Sarah and others in the Old Testament who were as good as dead. That's what the text says, and God brings life to them. Well, God does that here to, to Ruth. And in that way, she stands with people like Eve and Sarah. And she stands as a precursor to the lady at the start of the next book in our canon, Hannah, who's also infertile. And and in this way, she prefigures a lady way down the road whose womb is, is one in which no children could possibly come. But there's this work of God that grants conception to Mary. So there's this long line of individuals, and in every case, conception belongs to the Lord. So two points of response is there. To those who might be experiencing challenges in conceiving children, give that to the Lord. Appeal to him in prayer. He is the God who exercises power over the womb. I think 
alongside of that encouragement is a warning against putting your hope in all kinds of fertility treatment and, and allowing yourself to grasp at every input faith in every possible way to attain conception outside of appeals to the Lord. Don't, don't be the kind of lady who goes after mandrakes thinking that that's where the power of the womb is. Don't be the kind of lady who buys a thousand essential oils to try to have a child. Appeal to the Lord, knowing that the power of the womb is in the hands of the Lord. And that doesn't change just because scientists in laboratories can manipulate things. Conception belongs to the Lord. So if, if you experience struggles here, find hope and put faith in the Lord is the God who controls the womb. Further, though, as we reflect on this idea of infertile wombs and fallow fields being given life in the book of Ruth, that is just a microcosm of God's redemptive work to bring life to dead things. We're going to talk about this more next week, so I'll, I'll put a pause on it, but let me give you another spoiler alert. The ultimate life-giving source will be Jesus Christ himself, and, and he's the hope we have now. So wherever we sense death in this world and wherever we are fearful of the future and the death that it may hold, Jesus Christ is going to be our answer. So whether it's a field or a womb or a dying church, Jesus Christ, through the redemptive work of the Lord, will bring life.